0: Okay, if you have Bibles with you, would you please open up to Matthew chapter 5. Last couple of weeks I've been speaking on the topic of mercy. Well, actually I've been doing an introduction into the topic of mercy. Um, Two weeks ago I talked about mercy and changing seasons. On how I had, through the articles I read, the books that I read, the websites that I visit, the messages that I listened to on tape, I I had discovered three distinctly different voices in Christendom communicating the same thing. And it gets my attention when people who are coming from very different places seem to come up with you know a similar theme. And they're talking about change in the church. Not just you know light change, but significant change coming to the church. One of the authors even even compared to how significant the Reformation was to the life of, uh, of the church throughout history, that we're in another one of those kind of seasons. And, um, and the way that he defined it was that we were changing from a ruler season to a mercy season. I like that language. It works for me. I understand it. I'm hoping to offer more understanding to you. But this is my thought. If the seasons have changed, just like we would change our clothing to be more appropriate for the seasons... If spiritual seasons is changing, then it would be good for us to have some understanding of what those changes are like. If we're in a mercy season, if that's accurate, then wouldn't it be beneficial for us to have a better understanding of mercy? And so, you know, as further introduction, last week I looked at the seven redemptive gifts of the Spirit from Romans chapter 12. We looked at the context of the verses. We, we, I took time to define, at least in small measure, each of them. Uh, and and then offer to you a unique perspective. Some some people can identify uh, what they think are personality traits for the people who would have each one of those gifts. Now it's not hardcore science, and it's not you know it's not rigid in that it's always like this. But I found it to be interesting that I thought they were pretty close to being on the mark with many of the, with my experience. People who have those gifts also tend to have those types of personality traits. And so I had put out um, uh, Sunday on Facebook and emailed to everybody uh, two files. One was a, a list with the different traits for each of the gifts, as well as a couple of tests that you could take. If you like those personality type tests, I told you I love that stuff. I can barely pass one up uh, without taking it. Um, and so for those of you who like that, those are emailed to everyone in the church. Dean hates that stuff. I told you. Years ago, I remember the first time I'd ever taken one of those, well, not the first time, but one of the first times, I'd gotten my first computer. I remember it was a a 386-33, all right? Now, at the time, it cost like $3,000, and it was smoking fast, right? It's probably one one one-thousandth of what my iPhone could do today. It was just amazing. But anyway, remember the big disk? Remember the big square floppy disk that you had to use to put in a computer? Well, I would would always buy the computer magazines, and they were advertising this one place, a dollar a disk. They had these programs. And so one of them was this personality test where you could answer 30 questions. It would pop out an eight-page report based upon your answers to give you a personality profile. I'm talking, oh, I love this. I mean, I had, I took it, I probably took it five or six times. I had all my friends take it, just printing out pages for everybody. Nadine hated this stuff. But this is what I discovered. I did twist her arm enough that she took the test. And it had an, it had something in there that I'd never seen in any personality test before. And they, they referred to it as a stamina level. And it was a scale of one to five. And so on this and it meant, you know, activity. How active did you like to be? And Nadine came in at 3. She was right there in the middle. She was normal. I came in as a 5, okay? I was off the chart. I would be busy all the time and when I had nothing to do, I'd find other things to do. And this was this was enlightening to me. This was incredibly eye-opening for me because in our in our relationship, we'd be doing stuff, especially church stuff and you know, she's running out of gas, and my, my engine's barely warmed up. I've hardly even started. And she's out of gas. And for the first, and I kept thinking, what's the matter with her? You know? <laughs> she just get with the program and do everything we got to do. And so I took this test, and I realized, oh, she's the normal one. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with her. I'm the one who's abnormal. I'm off the chart. So, you know, it really helped us in our relationship. I realized there are times when she's out of gas, and rightly so. i got to give her grace to just, you know, to rest and, and be done. And at the same time if I still have you know a whole tank full of fuel to burn off that she's gonna give me the space to do that. That was a that was many, many years ago, you could tell by the type of computer I had. I think we've both mellowed uh, since then, certainly I have, but anyway, that rabbit trail was to say I think sometimes there's values in that test. It really helped me in how I you know viewed Nadine. So you might the the stuff is probably still up on Facebook. It was emailed out to everyone and so if you, uh, if you like that kind of stuff, you can go do that. Um, today I want to continue with the, the theme of mercy uh, from Matthew 5. I want to take, you know, last two weeks have been an introduction into the topic, and it's been very broad. I want to narrow it down a little bit more today. I want to, I want to take a look at two classic texts uh, addressing mercy, and then I want to tell you my, my story, my journey of, of mercy. And so... Um, If you're open to Matthew 5, we'll begin by uh, reading through the Beatitudes. Verse 1. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began teaching them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, and in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Lord, I thank you for your word, for the truth that's in your word. It have its full impact on us today. So this morning, I want to focus on that fifth beatitude, the mercy beatitude, where it says in verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. I've taught on the beatitudes before, and I don't know, maybe one of these days we'll do it again here. Um, I believe that the beatitudes describe the characteristics of kingdom citizens. If we're kingdom, if we are citizens of the kingdom of God, I think the beatitudes are a wonderful list of what the characteristics of people who hold that citizenship. What it'll be, and so because I've taught on it in the past, I don't want to go into an expansive teaching on it. But let me just give you the the highlights, the tips of each of it. just Just a statement for each. Where Jesus says, "Blessed are the poor in spirit," I think that means that they're humble. When he says, blessed are the mournful, I think that means that there's brokenness in them. Don't you know that there are things in us that need to be broken? There are things that aren't broken that need to be broken off of us. Blessed are the meek. They're willing to yield. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I believe that that means they passionately desire eternity. Blessed are the merciful. I think merciful, mercy means this. It means to be actively compassionate. Some people would say that love is a verb. That there's action that, goes, that connects to it. I think mercy is an expression of love and action. It's actively compassionate. Blessed are the pure in heart. Their mind and will and emotions are clean, undivided, uncorrupted, and without mixture. Blessed are the peacemakers. They're willing to do what needs to be done to bring about safety, security, and harmony. And blessed are the persecuted. They're treated wrong for doing right. To them belongs the kingdom of heaven, the comfort of God. They'll inherit the earth. There'll be satisfaction and compassion. They'll behold God, and they carry in them sonship. So that's just an overview of the Beatitudes. Someday I'll, I'll break each of those down. It's a whole good series I have. But that's not today. The fifth Beatitude. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Let's, let's look at some definitions for mercy. Strong's Concordance defines mercy this way. To help the afflicted. To bring help to the wretched. David Guzik, one commentator I enjoy... He defines it this way, the merciful care and reach out to help those that are in need without demanding that they deserve such help. The merciful are those who care and reach out to help those who are in need without demanding that they deserve it. I like the way Peterson takes verse 7 of the Beatitudes. Once again, I think he gets it in the message. He says, Blessed are you when you care. For at the moment you are careful, or full of care, you find yourself cared for. I think those are some good definitions. I look at it this way. I've always compared mercy and grace. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Grace is when we get what we don't deserve. Salvation. There's none of us that have earned or deserved salvation. That's what grace is. Getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve judgment right? you know for the things for failings for sin in our lives we deserve judgment mercy is when we when we're not getting what we do deserve mercy is the activity of compassion's motivation mercy is being actively compassionate I think in my own life one of the expressions of mercy in ministry that we've done in other places is at an event called Burning Man. And I've, I've referenced this before. It's a, it's a huge um, art and pagan festival that happens in the Nevada desert every year. About 50,000 people show up. And so friends of ours, and, and Nadine and I, uh, felt like you know, we wanted to be light and darkness. So they have this huge festival out in the desert. And the first year I went, we gave away 20,000 bottles of water in the desert. That's that's a practical way of of loving people people for some of them it's saving their lives, you know. Especially if they're if they're high or they're or they're intoxicated out in the desert, they might forget the need to hydrate. Twenty thousand bottles went a long way. And we would use that not only just to help them, but as a, a means of introduction. And we had a tent there opened up where we would minister to these people. And we did it in unique ways and some out-of-the-box ways. I might get to teach uh, to you someday, but um, what we, we offered to them out on that playa was only a little bit of grace, in that we seen just a few salvations. But what we did give to them was truckloads of mercy. We went there being non-judgmental. And you know what? One of the things we need to learn to do better in the church is to not judge. Somewhere along the line, you know, we forgot that Jesus said, judge not, <laughs> lest you be judged. And so for generations now, um, we've judged people. Um, two surveys, one scientific, one, one just a friend of mine did. There's a great book out. By David Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons, called Unchristian. And it's a few years old now, but at the time um, the study was done, they'd interviewed tens of thousands of people between the ages of 19 and 29. And they wanted to know what, and these were unchurched people, wanted to know what is their perception of the church. The number one answer they came back with. Was that Christians are judgmental. And you know what? They don't like us. I think we reap what we've sown. We've been judgmental, and so what we reap now is their judgment against us. So what do we do about that? Well, I think we change our behavior. And instead of coming to people with judgment, we could have done that on the it, we came to them with mercy. And they responded really well to it. They loved being loved. I have a good friend, Dawn Coffin. I hope you guys get to meet her someday. This amazing woman of God, extraordinarily gifted and talented. She would be awesome for a women's uh, retreat. But we were, they, they were our associate pastors and took over our church in Washington when we left. Well, one night on Saturday, we had this church that was downtown. There weren't too many places you could get in trouble in Kennewick, but if you wanted to get in trouble in Kennewick, Washington, this was the place to be. There was, we were on the corner and, you know, Within one block radius, there was, I think, four bars and two tattoo parlors, and you know, you know, the drug den uh, of the of the city was right across the street from us. It was a great location. It was a coffee house location. We were right in the heart of the city. And so, one Saturday night, the worship team was there and they're practicing for Sunday morning. And Don, I think she was going to speak the next day, so she got the idea: what if I went around the neighborhood with a clipboard and just did an impromptu survey? And she would go up to people and say, hey, I'm doing a survey. I just need you to answer one question, just one word. You know, When I say Christian, what's the first word that comes to mind? Overwhelming response she got from the people in the bars and the tattoo parlors and the clubs. She thought, they said Christians are judgmental. And the number two answer was that we were hypocritical. Right? So I don't know what we're doing, but it's not working. <laughs> right? We're supposed to be the light of the world, and they're not attracted to our light. You know? Jesus said, all men will know you are my disciples by the way you love. Well, I think we're missing. I, I don't know. If I'm just inspecting the fruit of it, something's not going right. I think the way we can stem that tide is with love and mercy. So I'm encouraging that. So we're out in Burning Man, and we had compassion. We were actively compassionate to the burners. We, we express mercy by not judging them. Instead, we just loved them where they were, no matter what their religion or spiritual background. And the response that we got from them repeatedly was this: "You're not like any other Christians we've ever met." And it kept coming back. When people enter into an environment of love and mercy, they want more of it. Hey, my love tank is far from full. You know, I need more love. How about you? Is your love tank overflowing? Do you feel like, I have all the love I need. I don't need anybody else to love me. Just back away. I don't know. I don't hear that too often. So love is powerful. Mercy is powerful. An author I like, I like most of what he writes, is John Piper. And he explains mercy well. Uh with the parable of the Good Samaritan. So, I know it's a few verses, but just hang in there. Let me, let me read the, the biblical account, this parable, and then we'll look, from that we'll look to describe four dimensions of mercy. This is from Luke 10, 25 and 37. It says, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, What must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, so, who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, he tells him the parable. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side of the road. So, too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, He came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went and bandaged his wounds, poured oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to a man who fell into the hand of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Powerful story. So much that could be said about it. There are four dimensions of mercy, I think, that we could find in this story. The first is this. Mercy sees distress. Mercy sees the problem or the need. Verse 33 says, a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was and when he saw him. There was an ability to see that there was a need there. The second dimension is this, is it responds internally with a heart of compassion or pity toward the person in distress. Not only do you see them, but there's something inside you that's moved. Again, finishing up verse 33, he says, And when he saw the man, he had pity, or he had compassion on him. So it's not just seeing him. Something inside us is moved by their need. The third is that there's a a response. There's a practical, tangible, external response to what's been seen and what's been felt. And so verse 34 says, He went to him bandaged his wounds, poured on oil and wine, put the man on his own donkey and took care and took him to an inn and took care of him. So this is not only just a stranger. These are this is a Samaritan. These guys were these guys were in conflict. So there was a response. He did practical tangible things. He not just saw it wasn't he did more than just see the need and feel the need. He met the need. And the fourth dimension of mercy is that it happens even when the person who's in distress is by religion or by race an enemy. Verse 33 says, But a Samaritan, they were considered half-breed Jews with a warped religious tradition. That's the one who stopped to help the Jew who hates him. That's kind of what we've seen In Burning Man, they had all kinds of screwy ideas about faith and religion and spirituality. It was all twisted and warped. They believed everything and anything. But we didn't see them as our enemy. We went there with hearts of mercy to love them in tangible and practical ways. One of the things that I almost brought it today, maybe I'll do it another time, but one of the things that we would do is after people would have, after we'd minister to them, after we would have what we refer to as an encounter with them, Before they left, we had a guest book. And they could sign the guest book just letting us know what the experience meant to them. I have three of those books at home from one of the years we were there. I can't tell you how encouraging it is sometimes to just go through those pages. When people in their own words talk about how deeply they were touched. And these are people that would, they're so far from coming into the four walls of the church. So we went to them. Mercy has four dimensions, eyes that see the need, a heart of compassion, making the effort to help. It's more than sympathy. Sympathy feels bad. Compassion is moved to action. And even if that person is your enemy, that's mercy. I think the story of the Good Samaritan is an incredible parable that describes mercy in action. So how do we get mercy? Anybody here could use extra mercy? I could probably use a little extra mercy. Blessed are the merciful, right? For they will receive mercy. How do we get mercy? Piper says that the the key to becoming a merciful person is to become a broken person. You get the power to show mercy from the real feeling in your heart that you owe everything you are and everything you have to sheer divine mercy. Sometimes we need to be able to see it. We've seen it at Burning Man. I've seen it in other outreach programs that I've been involved in. You know, as you guys know, I love operating in the gifts of the Spirit. But it's been my purpose for more than a decade now that we not just train people on how to operate in the gifts of the Spirit, but how we do it outside the church. I think it gets gets screwy. (laughs) when it's only happening inside the church. John Wimber used to say that the meat is in the street. That's where the real work of the kingdom happens. So I think what we do in here ought to be training for what we could do out there. That's what I loved about Burning Man. What I loved about some of the prophetic evangelism stuff I've done, the outreaches that I've always seen, is we get to take the gifts of the Spirit that we've studied and been trained and equipped with here and take it out into the world. Because people love it. It has a huge impact on them. Where else do we see mercy? We see it at local shelters or community food pantries. We see it on the mission field. Look around you, and you'll see it. And when we see it, it breaks us. And we have to do something. And it could be a vast array of things, that, ways that we can express mercy. Sometimes it's giving an, an encouraging word or giving away food or handing out water bottles in the desert. We do something. We're actively compassionate. There's action involved. Sometimes it's big things, like the Samaritan. Wow, this dude really went out there, didn't he? He not only saw the guy, man, he rescued him. He probably saved his life that day. We have friends of ours who have 11 children. They have three birth children. They've adopted uh, eight more. They have just amazing heart, amazing capacity. Now, even if you had 11 perfect children, don't you know your life would be crazy, <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, just, I'm just thinking, having enough toilet paper on hand suddenly becomes a pretty serious issue. Let alone dinner time, you getting people out to school. But they, they adopted children from, from Asia, from India, and from Africa. And they saved their lives. These are broken kids. They came from really messed up places. You know, but there was something inside of them that had mercy to want to take action, even at their own expense, which is what the Samaritan did. Love and action. Sometimes it's big things. We give our time and we don't have it. We listen longer than we want to. But as long as the person needs to be listened to. We hug those who need a hug, we cry with those who need to cry. We sit quietly by their side when no words will do any good. I believe that in these characteristics, we will see played out before us this mercy season. What's the enemy of mercy? Enemy of mercy is a hard heart, hearts that are not broken. We see, like the Pharisee and the Levite, but we take no action. Sympathy can be the enemy of mercy. We might feel bad, but it doesn't move us to active compassion. It doesn't move us to to mercy. So a hard heart can be an enemy of, of mercy. A religious spirit can be an enemy of mercy. That's what was happening with the Pharisee and the Levite, right? They didn't want to become unclean. If they touched this Samaritan, well, then they weren't going to be able to engage in their religious practices for a period of time. A religious spirit will keep us to, to take no action for religious reasons. You know, their demon might get on me. A real Christian would never go to Burning Man, they have naked people there. Christians don't interpret dreams. When we would do our dream interpretation outreaches, we put up a booth at a county fair or uh, some, some event and the non-Christians, they loved it. The only people who gave us crap were the other Christians in town. They would get sit down and get in our face and, I don't know, they were just mean. They were. Christians don't interpret dreams. A religious spirit will, will use their religion as an excuse or some way to explain away their lack of compassion. Ultimately, I think we are merciful because someone has extended mercy to us. And that's my story. If there's there's anything good in me, it's because other people or God put it there. I think it was this past week, um, during our book club meeting, I shared my personal testimony. And I realized, yeah, I never told that story here. And it really is a a story of mercy in my life. And so I want to take the remainder of my sermon and share that with you as as an illustration, a personal life illustration of mercy. So I'm the oldest of my parents' four children. Mom was 16 When her and dad discovered that she was pregnant with me. And, you know, where that's kind of socially acceptable today, didn't fly in 1959 in Brooklyn. That was a big deal back then. And so under a cloak of shame and and then a hush-hush thing, mom and dad got married. I think my grandmother was there, and one couple who were family friends uh, were there. I think there's one picture. I think there's one photograph of their wedding day. And so um, they were babies having babies, right? And uh, a year later, my brother was born. Uh, A year and a day after my birth. My my mother said that at my first birthday party, they blew out the candles on my cake and she went into labor and they took her to the hospital. She had my brother. So we're a year and a day apart. And And then about 11 months after that, she had my next brother. So for about three years, Mom was pregnant, right? And so now they're not only are they just babies having babies, their babies having lots of babies. So they have lots of kids. And as far back as I can remember, mom was sick. Matter of fact, my earliest memory of childhood uh, was mom being passed out. Um, we lived in a five-story walk-up in Brooklyn, and we had an apartment on one end of the building, and then there was a long hallway with a staircase that went down, but a long hallway and apartments on the other side. So we lived here and grandma lived on that side. And so I, you know, piecing, you know, getting pieces of the story, having talked to mom about it later on, this is what happened. She wasn't feeling well. She had lots of physical issues in her body. The doctors once told her that from the waist down, she had the body of an immature little girl, and from the waist up, she had the body of an old man, especially heart disease. So I'm not sure exactly what was happening to her that day, but she had three little kids, and she knew she wasn't doing well and was trying to get to Grandma's apartment. And she passed out on the way. And so this is my earliest memory. Mom's unconscious on the floor. Maybe I'm four years old. And I knew it was my responsibility to make sure that neither one of my brothers fell down the stairs. And I remember trying to revive Mom. And somehow Grandma came out and rescued her. But that's like my earliest memory. And that dynamic played out for much of my early life. Mom was always sick. She probably spent half of my childhood in the hospital. This was back in the days where open heart surgery was like a 16-hour procedure. And then you would spend six months in the hospital, in ICU, recovering. And she went through that twice. And, um, and neither surgery worked effectively. After the second surgery failed, Mom had a nervous breakdown. And she was hospitalized for a long time after that. Could you imagine what it would be like to spend all that investment of time of sacrifice, pain, trying to recover and to find out after a second surgery that it didn't work again? And So it's not like they do it today, where the surgery is over in three or four hours and you're out of the hospital two days later. She'd be hospitalized for six months at a time. She's a young woman. She had her first heart attack at 29. And her body looked like a railroad map because they would take the veins from parts of her legs and the scars on her arms and the scars down her chest. It had a huge impact on her to go through all of that. And it failed the second time. It was more than she could take. And so she was, she was hospitalized for a nervous breakdown. Life was hard growing up in a Zawacki household. Dad worked two and three jobs. Remember, he got married as a young boy. He didn't have an education. He just worked hard and worked a lot anything to keep a roof over our head and food in our bellies and pay exorbitant uh, medical bills that just seemed to be endlessly racking up. And he was an angry man. He was a very angry man. I didn't understand at the time I was a kid, but I have a box for it now. Man, how could he deal with all this? Well, he didn't deal with it well. And, and one of the reasons he didn't deal with it well was the family he was raised in. My grandfather, my father's father, was the most miserable old man I've ever met in my whole life. He was mean. He was so mean. (laughs) He literally drove my grandmother crazy. So this is probably back in, in the 1950s. Maybe late 1940s. My grandmother, strong, faithful Catholic woman becomes pregnant with a third child. And my grandfather didn't want to have a third child. So he forced her to have an abortion. And as a Catholic, that was more than she could bear. And she jumped off the Brooklyn Bridge trying to kill herself. But she survived. Her body survived. Her her mind never recovered. And so this is the house that my father grew up in. So I, I have understanding now. I did not have that understanding as a teenager. He was an angry man. He had no idea what it was like to be loved by a father. He had overwhelming responsibility with what would eventually become four children and a wife who was just never healthy. And so for all of that and all the dynamics that happened, as the oldest son, huge levels of responsibility were put on me. Whether I liked it or not, there was a need to be met. There were younger siblings and there were no adults available at times, and so I had to, I had to step up. And there, you know, I can look back now and see how the hand of God was in some of that to help shape me and mold me and form me, you know, to be a caretaker to be pastoral today. But it came at a huge price. And the only example of manhood that I really had at that point in my life was my father, and he was an angry man. He would beat the daylights out of us. We'd walk around on eggshells, never knowing what was going to be the last. Raw, they break the camel's back, right? Because maybe he hadn't slept in days or maybe he got really bad news from the doctor or the bills were piling up. He didn't know how he was going to make ends meet and I didn't make my bed like I was supposed to. And so we would catch a beating. And it would happen pretty regularly. Today he'd probably be arrested. Then it was just life. You know? So we'll take all of that. This is my home life. Now, I'm a big guy today, but I was skinny as a stick back then. Really, really thin. I had a funny last name. I had a big nose. I used to have a mole on my nose right here. I eventually, I got it removed. Got a big mole on my nose right here. And the kids would sing this song There's a wart, there's a wart that grows on Tommy's nose. And they would sing it. They did. I wore glasses. And I got beat up after school every day from first grade to eighth grade. Um, I have a brother that's a year younger than me. From about age eight on, he was bigger. I was skinny. He just filled out. I can't tell you how many times I can remember his hand reaching down under a pile of me getting pummeled, and he's rescuing me, dragging me out from under, you know, someone beat me up that day. So now now I'm 16 years old, and much like my father, I am an angry man. I'm angry that mom's never there, and I needed her. I'm angry that dad's always mean. I'm angry that the kids at school make fun of me. I'm just angry. I had this one really good friend. His name is Frankie. We had grown up together in one neighborhood, then my parents moved, and then... Frankie and his parents bought a house around the corner. So, Frankie, this kid Frankie, is my oldest friend. He's a year older than me. We're about the same age. And now, something that we would do in Brooklyn all the time was play stickball. Anybody know what stickball is? We take a small ball, spalding, rubber ball, and we take a, either a stickball bat or if we didn't have one, we would just steal the mop handle or the broom handle. And we basically play baseball in the street. So, this manhole cover is home base, and the bumper of that car is first. The, the manhole covered down the street second. And this bumper is third. And so we played baseball in the street. And we were good. And I can tell you what, Frankie, my best friend, he was the best outfielder in the neighborhood. He was amazing. And so this one day we're playing stickball, and I think I was up at bat. I hit, hit a ball, must have gone a mile high. But Frankie's in the outfield. He's tracking it down. I, could, I remember, I could I could see him running down. And, um, and he's got his eye on the ball. He's running full speed. And just as he catches the ball, he runs right into a fire hydrant, right? And he, he nails his, uh, I think it was his left thigh, hit that fire hydrant at full speed. He was looking up at the ball, didn't even see it. He went down like he got shot, right? But he held on to the ball. <laughs> he let the ball drop. And so we're on Easter break from school, and the, uh, the next day, we... We used to hang out on 34th Street in Brooklyn. The kids from 35th Street challenged me and Frankie and my brother Robert to a game of stickball. We're thinking, no problem, we got these guys. But instead of walking around the block, there was an alleyway. And, um, and there, was, um, there were fences, gates on either end of the, the alleyway. And one of the neighbors put locks on the gate so her kids could play back there and not, not get out. We're 15, 16, 17 years old. The locks on those gates mean nothing to us, right? We hop over the first fence and we walk all the way through the alley and we're basically at the back of my house ready to hop over the next fence. And Frankie's in front of me. He's climbing up over the fence. And I see this little plastic toy guitar on the floor. And I don't know, momentary inspiration. Here's Frankie's butt. There's the toy guitar. So I pick up the guitar. and whack him across the butt with it, right? I just thought it was funny. Well, Frankie jumps down, and he's furious. He's yelling at me. He says, you know I hurt my leg yesterday. What'd you do that for? And he punches me, and it hurt. And it was, it was this moment in time where all of my rage came to the surface. Not only do I have all this stuff going on in my life with family and with school and being bullied, but here I have my best friend, and he's hitting me. And so, you ever have one of those moments where a lot of thoughts go through your head in just a few seconds? Maybe a nanosecond, you have all these thoughts? These are the thoughts that went through my head. Okay, Frankie's my best friend. I mean, hitting him back, that's going to happen. All right, it's, There's no question whether or not I'm going to hit him back, because he hit me and I'm angry and it hurt. But where am I going to hit him? He's my best friend, so I don't want to punch him in the face. Right? I remember thinking that. And he hurt his leg really bad yesterday, so I don't want to hit him in the leg. So I'll aim toward the middle. Right? All these thoughts in just a nanosecond. And so I throw a right hook and I crunch him in the side and I hit him hard. And I could see that it hit him hard. You could see the pain on his face. And I was happy. I was glad that I'd hurt him. I was so glad. I am going, going to hit him again. And so I did. I reared back, and I crunched him again, right in the same spot. And this is what happened. His eyes rolled in the back of his head. He dropped to the ground. And what we would discover is that i ruptured his spleen. Right. Call an ambulance. They come and take him. He has to have emergency surgery to have his spleen removed. As a 16-year-old, this is the worst moment of my life. I was mad and angry at him. I never wanted that to happen, right? And so, you know, this is a problem now. We're we're just behind my house, so we get to my parents first, that Frankie needs help, and they get in touch with his parents around the corner, and they rush Frankie off to the hospital. The first evidence to me that maybe there was something real about this God stuff was the fact that my father didn't pound me into dust when he found out what I did. You see, for weeks before, for, for my mom actually, for about a year before, it, and for, for the rest of my family, varying times, weeks and months before, they'd started going to this Catholic charismatic prayer group in town. I thought they were crazy. My mother actually started going because she was angry at God and was going to read this book of his, this Bible thing, and prove him wrong. And as she read the Word and she got involved with this group, her heart began to change the Lord. And she would constantly invite uh, myself and my siblings to go. And I'm like, I want nothing to do with this God stuff. And my brother went. And he got one of our other friends to go. He even got Frankie to go for a few weeks. Um, I remember this one day. We're, we're in the dining room. And we're sitting there. And mom says, um, mom says let's pray I'm looking at her I'm thinking what do you want to pray about there's no food on the table <laughs> right what do you, why do you want to pray she says well let's pray about this okay. and my brother's standing there and she says and, and let's hold hands as we pray thinking, hold hands I don't want to hold his hand why do I have to hold his hand and why is holding hands have anything to do with praying I don't get this but it's my mother and she's always been sick so you're nice to your mother right alright mom I'll hold your hand. I'll even hold my brother's hand. I don't want to, but I will. (laughs) And so we hold hands, and they begin to pray, and the next thing I know, the two of them speaking in tongues, right? (laughs) And now I realize why they're holding my hand, because I can't get away, and these are crazy people. (laughs) Ah. So it got to the point where all the members of my family were going to this Catholic charismatic prayer group, except me. I kept resisting. They needed somebody to watch my baby sister on whatever it was, Wednesday or Thursday nights, it's like, yeah, you go do your Jesus stuff. I'll babysit here. My girlfriend will come over and help me, right? So I had nothing to do with this Jesus stuff. But my father was even going at this point. And so the first evidence that God was real was that he didn't kill me because I ruptured Frankie, Frankie's spleen and put him in the hospital. So, of course, my parents go up to the hospital, and um, I don't know where my siblings were at that point, but I'm home alone. And I feel terrible, you know? I'm wishing it was me instead of Frankie, I can't, uh, you know, I just want to die. I remember they had a, my mother had a Bible on the coffee table and I actually by myself reluctantly went over to it and kind of from a distance lifted up the cover, I was like maybe there's something in here for me, I, I think I'll just leave that there. And then the phone rang and it was, a, it was the leader of this prayer group. So the word had gotten out that Frankie was in the hospital having emergency surgery And so she was calling for an update. They were going to do a prayer chain. Remember the prayer chains that would happen over a phone, right? All the phone calls would go out, get people praying for Franklin. And the leader, she's a 22-year-old gal. At the time, her name is uh, Carmella, And she's still one of my oldest and dearest friends to this day. And she's on the phone and trying to get information. I didn't really know too much. I gave her what I knew. And at one point on the phone, she says to me, "Um, Are you okay? And I was like, oh, I won the fight. I'm, I'm fine. Frankie's doing some trouble. You know? She says, no, no. I understand. But I want to know, are you okay? And it just so took me off guard. I didn't know how to answer her question. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm fine. I hang up the phone. So Frankie has surgery. He survives the surgery. Um, the hospital is only a few blocks away. I go to see him the next day. I have to go see him. He's my best friend. And so I go up there, and man, he's looking bad. He's got all these tubes and wires hooked up to him. They had an IV in his hand. Did you ever see when the IV is not doing right and sometimes a person's hand will like blow up like a balloon? That's what his hand looks like. He's got this huge bandage across from him. And his mother's sitting there and she's not giving me a happy look at all. She's not happy with me. And so I'm feeling terrible. So I tell him, Frankie, I'm, you know, I, you know, I, I'm not sure I had the language of forgiveness, but I was communicating, Frankie, I am so sorry. You know, Please forgive me. I'll do anything you know, to make this up to you. My last birthday, I'd gotten this brand new bike. The first time in my life I'd ever gotten this green bike with banana seat and, and nice handlebars. I said, Frankie, please forgive I will give you my bike, right? my prized possession. And so Frankie, you know, looking half dead, he looks at me and says, I don't want your bike. He said, all I want you to do is go to the prayer meeting and ask those people to pray for me. I'm thinking, oh, man, <laughs> take the bike. <laughs> please take the bike. What am I going to do? I just gave him my word. I said I would do anything. He's laying there in bed, right, all bandaged up, and I'm messing because of what I did. I got to go. I got to go to the prayer meeting and tell him, ask him to pray for Frankie. And maybe it was my youth. I don't know. Maybe it was because I grew up in Brooklyn. For some reason, in my mind, my, my thought is, these people are going to hate me. See, Frankie was part of that group, and I hurt Frankie, and so they should be mad at me. They should be very mad at me because of the horrible thing that I did. They should respond to me with as much uh, disapproval and anger as rage that warranted my horrible behavior. And so, but, I'm, I'm just going to tough it out and put up with it. After all, Frankie's in the hospital. You know, They probably won't do that to me, but you know, I'll go do my duty. And so I go. And so what do you think happened when I showed up? They'd all been praying for Frankie all week. They've been praying for me all week, too. And when I got there, I will never forget how they loved me. These people responded to me with unconditional love. I did not deserve to be loved, I deserved to be judged. They did not give me what I deserved. They didn't give me judgment, they gave me mercy, they gave me truckloads of mercy. And, and you know what? For a kid who'd been beat up after school every day through the eighth grade, for someone whose mom was never there and whose dad was angry, for someone who had had burden of responsibility that he was always way too young and ill-equipped to deal with, I needed to be loved. My desperate need to be loved was overwhelming. And I would go there, and they would love me. I kept going back. I didn't know what this charismatic prayer group thing was about. Tongue still kind of freaked me out a bit. But those people loved me. And I desperately needed to be loved. My love tank was so empty. They were merciful to me. And they loved on me. So I kept going back. A few, a couple of months later, they began this beginner's Bible study course called a Life in the Spirit Seminar. Anybody remember that? from years ago? You guys remember, right? It was a seven-week course. And basically, they would take you through the gospel message that you know God is love and man is a sinner and take you through all the different steps. And during the fifth week of the course, they gave us an opportunity to pray and accept Jesus as Lord and Savior and to pray for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That was about 9 o'clock at night on July 1st, 1976. I had a radical encounter with God. They prayed for me, and something changed. Before that night, I was basically a follower. I didn't even do that well. And God did something in me, and it changed that night. From that day forward, I found myself in leadership in every group that I've been in. This, Bible stu- this midweek prayer group, Bible study, they would, they'd have 250, sometimes 350 people would come. And about 75 of them were teenagers. And they were my friends and Robert's friends. All our friends came. So de facto, we were, we were the leaders of the teenagers. God radically changed my life on that day. And key to it was mercy. My father showed mercy to me by not giving me what I deserved. If I ever deserved a beating, I deserved a beating that day. There were lots of times I got beatings I didn't deserve them. Man, I deserved something that day. He didn't give me what I deserved. And when Camilla called on the phone, she extended mercy to me. She didn't give me what I deserved. She didn't give me a talking to. She didn't rebuke me. She didn't challenge me. She extended mercy to me that day. How are you doing? Frankie extended mercy to me. He, we remained friends. That night I got saved on July 1st and they prayed for me through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Frankie was sitting next to me on one side. My brother Robert was on the other. Frankie extended mercy to me. He didn't give me what I deserved. I did not deserve his friendship after that. And he remained my good friend. For many years, as we got older, our lives went in different directions. But at that point, his parents demonstrated mercy to me. They had every right to call the police. I could have been arrested that day, and they had mercy. I mean, they did not give me what I deserved. The people at the prayer group, they didn't give me the judgment I deserved. They extended mercy to me and loved me when I felt like the most unlovable person on the planet. And God extended great mercy to me. I resisted and resisted and resisted. I can look back at the year before that and see all the different steps, all the invitations i had been given and how I just ran away. He chased me down and he captured my heart. He changed my life. He surrounded me with merciful people and he extended extraordinary mercy to me. How could I live a life that does anything but extend mercy to others when such great, extravagant mercy has been extended to me? So my story is a story of mercy. My story is of a man who didn't get what he deserved. I bet your story is the same too. At least parts of it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your goodness and your kindness toward me. I thank you for your mercy and your grace in my life. Lord, I pray that we would be merciful people that we would be actively compassionate, that we not only see and feel, but that we would be moved to do. Lord, I ask that you give us new hearts, that you give us merciful hearts. Give us eyes to see opportunities to be actively compassionate. Lord, I pray that you would make of us a people of mercy in the mercy season. Do that, Lord. Even now, I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit that you would pour out mercy into the lives of every man, woman, and child here. Just pour out mercy into the Fill it up to overflow.